This is a CBC podcast. A lot of constituents have approached me and they are concerned about the safety and security of their own kids, like mothers whose daughters wear hijab. They are like pretty obvious, so they are very scared. I'm scared about the safety of my own children. Um, I have two boys, 25 and 23 year old, and like since day one, when uh, like I saw these rising incidents, I've been telling them, and I'm scared. Like when he goes on a go train, and every day I have to remind him, be calm, don't enter into any argument or anything. So as a mother, I think it's concerning. That's Salma Zahid, Liberal MP for Scarborough Centre. She's one of many politicians voicing concerns about a rise in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. That includes Conservative MP Melissa Lantzman. It is unfathomable to me that in 2023 anyone should fear sending their kids to school, being near a place or in a place of worship at a community centre or in a business owned by an identifiable group at at the centre of this war. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, the Prime Minister says prejudice is on the rise since the war between Israel and Hamas broke out. We'll talk to the public safety minister about keeping Canadians safe. We'll also look at the fight over Alberta's proposed pension plan. And we're going to dig deeper into Quebec's pledge to dramatically hike tuition for out-of-province students. It's a move that's expected to hit English universities hard. All while Quebec's premier says those English-speaking students threaten French. We'll ask the mayor of Montreal what she thinks of that. First, though, the rise of prejudice and even hate in Canada starting with what MPs are hearing in their communities. The House is now in session. So it's very personal for me as a Jew, but also personal for me as a member of Parliament who's in touch regularly with constituents, which includes members of the Muslim community who are very much feeling the same way. I said in the House the other day that they have a fear right now, Jews and Muslims, of being outed for who they are in their own communities for fear of their safety. And we don't have to wade into the debate of what's happening in the Middle East to understand that and to treat that seriously. Winnipeg Liberal MP Ben Carr is hearing about the fear in his community. Conservative MP Karen Vecchio represents a riding in London, Ontario. The uptick in fear is all the more acute there, she says, because of the ongoing trial of the man accused of driving his truck into a Muslim family in June 2021, killing four of them. So we are already dealing with a very intense situation. So this puts it on where, you know, we can see the division. And so we need to work together. There has been a call for action by Mayor Josh Morgan talking about working together and people being people. And and that's what we need to do in our area. We have representatives from the Liberal, NDP and Conservative Party all representing London. And so we need to work together for the, the people and the victims. Conservative Shuvaloy Majumdar says there are strong feelings in his riding too. I represent the highest density of Jewish life in Alberta in Calgary Heritage and the anxiety they feel about protests on the streets today, about friends and loved ones in Israel, about moral equivalencies that are so soon to come over the self-defense Israel has a right to implement. All of these things are certainly top of mind for many of the people I represent. Justice Minister Arif Varani is feeling the impact as well. As an MP and Personally, You know, I'm a father of two young boys, and when a young boy in a different country, very close to us in Illinois, is killed by a person that's six decades older than them, 
it's troubling. It's troubling for anyone. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to do whatever we can to promote more unity on the ground in our ridings around the country. He was referring there to a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy allegedly stabbed by his landlord. The man has been charged with murder and hate crimes. NDP MP Leah Gazan is one of a number of MPs demanding Canada call for an immediate ceasefire in the Middle East. And she says the fears she's hearing about here at home need to be taken seriously. It has to be more than words. We need to make sure at uh, this time that people are safe. And I encourage people to reach out to their friends in the Islamic community and the Jewish community and, and check in on them and make sure they're doing okay. To talk about these concerns and how to address them, Dominic LeBlanc is the Minister of Public Safety. I spoke with him Friday. Welcome back to the House. Good morning. Now, we heard from many of your colleagues about the palpable fear in this country. So to start, I want to know what you would say to people who are feeling very vulnerable right now. And Catherine, I've spoken to many of them, my parliamentary colleagues, but just many people that I run into in Ottawa or in New Brunswick or when I was in Montreal. There is, as you picked up, a very real sense of concern uh, around security at Obviously, places of worship, because people perceive these to be targets of uh, potentially violent extremist action. The same thing would be true in community centers. But as we've seen in other countries, it can these kind of tragic, violent, senseless acts can happen on streets. So uh, as the public safety minister, I have been working with the RCMP, the Security Intelligence Service, Uh, literally almost daily updates as to what they're doing with provincial and municipal police, because this is an area where obviously the Ottawa police or the Toronto police or the Vancouver municipal police and provincial governments have overlapping responsibilities. The commissioner of the RCMP has convened the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police on multiple occasions, and they reassure me that they have put in place all of the appropriate measures to enhance the security of these places. Okay, I do want to talk about the measures in a moment, but as you say, you're having all of these conversations. And we heard the Prime Minister saying earlier this week, there's a rise in anti-Semitism, there's a rise in Islamophobia, particularly over the last couple of weeks. Are you able at all to quantify what people are are feeling? And, you know, we've heard about a handful of incidents in the media. Sure. So uh, obviously a series of specific incidents that may be subject to police investigations, it's complicated to talk about individual circumstances. Mm-hmm. But it's also fair to say, I think, as, as, as you noted, there, there is a reasonable and understandable heightened sense of anxiety in those two communities. But we saw it some weeks ago uh, when we talked publicly about the intelligence information around the murder of a Canadian citizen in Vancouver. You can imagine Sikh communities, some Hindu communities. So sadly, it's not the Hamas attack in Israel a couple of weeks ago that brought our government together with provincial and municipal partners trying to find the best way to reassure and protect communities, plural, in Canada. My department also has a really interesting program, Catherine, where we give money. It's a security infrastructure thing where we give money to temples mm-hmm. or to community centers or to gurdwaras or gathering places that want to improve their security systems, camera systems, alarm systems. Um, so my parliamentary colleagues and community members in their constituencies are talking to them about how they can quickly access this money. So that's just a small but tangible thing we can do, as well as the police and intelligence participation. Well, and that 
I mean, you've sort of wrapped it up there, but for people who are at home right now and listening and, um, you know, are nervous, as we just heard from one of your colleagues about their daughter leaving the house in her hijab, or uh, I, know, I know another one of your colleagues said this week, my daughter didn't wear her Star of David on her university campus because she was worried. What can you tell them about concrete things the government is doing to uh, try to manage this time of tension? That's a fair question. And it's it's sort of sad that you have to ask it, right? Like it's a horrible moment where people's identity is, is hidden or uh, they're uh, worried about identifying themselves with a particular community because of the risk of some violent incident or some hate and hate speech. Uh, that's obviously completely unacceptable in Canada. All political parties, everybody in the House of Commons has has spoken about that. I had a meeting last week in Beaumont, Quebec, with provincial public safety and justice ministers from across the country. We talked very much about this too. They obviously share our concern that every police force the municipal police forces come under the provincial police acts and some provinces have their own provincial police forces. Um, all of them need to work together and reassure that little girl who's on her way to school uh, or somebody that wants to leave their house or their place of work with a hijab, that the government's doing absolutely everything we can to ensure their protection. And in many cases, these are municipal polices that have increased patrols that are following intelligence information that our government is sharing with provincial and municipal partners where we can. Um, and we'll continue to do everything we can because it's, it's a worrisome time, but people need to know that the governments, plural, are doing absolutely everything we can. And we're hoping very much that we don't have a violent uh, incident in, on Canadian soil. I do want to ask you about the other part of governing in this moment, which is the weight of your words. And I, I mean, if we look at the example of this week of the, the blast uh, at a hospital in Gaza, there were some who felt that the prime minister's initial comments seemed to be pointing the finger at Israel. On Thursday, the prime minister said, well, we're still looking at the intelligence. My question is not about the specific incident, but rather how the government's words can heighten tension. Do you have to communicate or, or, or behave more carefully at this moment, knowing that, that, that comments on things that are happening overseas can have impacts heightening these tensions? Again, it's a terrific question. I think the answer is yes. Uh, because at a moment of reasonable, understandable anxiety, tension, fear, pick your word, uh, that Canadians uh, are experiencing... It behooves, I think, all of us in government to reassure them that we're doing everything we can and not to even inadvertently use words that perhaps are less precise and can, as you say, contribute to either the confusion or the sense of unease that people are feeling. There's also, Catherine, a great deal of disinformation and misinformation in this space. It's a, It's been a challenge, a growing challenge across a whole series of democratic institutions. It's not unique to Canada. We've talked about that before. But at a time of armed conflict, uh, I think it's the old cliche, the first casualty is often the truth. And with social media and the ability for these m malignant actors to propagate disinformation... We got to be careful as a government, not inadvertently, before we have as best as we can ever confirm information in these contexts. We don't inadvertently sort of propagate or pass on what might end up being very hurtful and inaccurate information. So we worry about that a lot. Okay, I, I do want to turn to another one of the roles that you have, which is Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs. 
As you will know, last week, the Prime Minister sent an open letter to Alberta Premier Daniel Smith outlining his concerns with the Alberta government's decision to explore withdrawing from the Canada Pension Plan. Smith's government released a report last month done by a third-party consultant, LifeWorks, that claims Alberta would be entitled to over half of the assets of the Canada Pension Plan, 53%. In his letter, the Prime Minister said that the move would cause undeniable harm to Canadian pensions and create uncertainty. Here is how Premier Smith responded. The Prime Minister is dramatically overstating the issue. There will be some impact, yes. Uh, The report says that because Alberta is a small population province, we would actually have a great savings in the amount of our over-contribution. But the effect on the rest of the country would be relatively small because it's a much larger population. This is what happens when you ask a small province of 4.5 million people to subsidize the rest of the country. So she is saying... I want what's fair. What percentage do you think Alberta is entitled to? Is 53% fair? I'm not going to comment on a private sector report, Catherine, that the government of Alberta commissioned. I haven't read that report. So you're unwilling to say whether that's um, a reasonable figure? Like you won't, I get that you won't offer your own number up, but you won't even say more than half... Yes or no? No, because I, I, have, I haven't read the report. I haven't seen the analysis. I'm certainly not an actuary. I was so bad in math and science as I went to law school. Uh, so, I, I'm like, I honestly, the Department of Finance would be doing their own analysis. The Canada Pension Plan Investment Board would be. Um, first of all, to say Alberta is a small province at four and a half million people, where I come from in Atlantic Canada, it's a very big province. And it's an important economic engine for the whole country. Um, I think what the Prime Minister said, and it is also reasonable, what's the percentage of who has what percentage of what assets and what liabilities, that's an interesting hassle for some actuaries to have. We hope they don't get there because... It's more than an interesting hassle, though. I mean, if they do get there, the percentage has enormous implications. But we hope they don't trigger that useless hassle is probably a better way to say it. Because what it does, and this is what the Prime Minister, I think, said very clearly is it puts not only the Canada Pension Plan benefits of Albertans at increased risk in the future. There are 19, 20-year-olds in Alberta contributing into that pension plan now that maybe won't draw down on it for 30 or 40 years. These people want to know that it's the exact opposite of the argument that Premier Smith, with, with whom I get along quite well, um, Premier Smith is making the argument that they're smaller so they can pull out and have their own system. There's security in numbers. I'd rather okay. be in a pension plan that has 40 million people in it than four and a half million. So, you know, Albertans are, it appears, going to have a referendum on this. That That's something that the, the Premier has suggested is, is a possibility. The Prime Minister has said he has instructed Cabinet to do, quote, everything possible to ensure CPP remains intact. Can you stop Alberta from pulling out? Um, look, it's ironic, too, that the previous government of Alberta joined us in strengthening and enhancing the Canada Pension Plan to give those 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds working in Alberta now greater and larger benefits at the time they need them. So we're strengthening and building the pension plan, while others seem to think that uh, they should tear it down or weaken it. I haven't seen the Department of Justice analysis on what is the constitutional competency of the legislature of Alberta versus the government of Canada. Uh, so but you, don't, simple, you don't know it, whether you can stop them? Uh, well, the Prime Minister's letter, I think, should make Albertans reflect on whether their government is taking a reasonable step or whether this is sort of a symbolic move that 
I mean, this is a government that passed something called the Sovereignty Act and then put it on a shelf in the legislature. Like, there have been a number of things that the Alberta government has done. And Premier Smith, when she was campaigning for the leadership, frankly, was going a lot further than she has as the sitting Premier of Alberta. We want to have a constructive dialogue. We think that if the government of Alberta, more importantly, Albertans contributing into what they hope is long-term, stable retirement security, think that Alberta going out on a frolic of its own, uh, in fact, makes their retirement more stable or, or, or more reliable, we think that's a mistake. So we tend to, we want to have that conversation with Albertans and obviously with the government of Alberta. Okay, I do want to ask you about another uh issue with the province's relationship with the rest of Canada, which is what is going on in Quebec right now vis-a-vis universities. The provincial government there has said uh, it will hike tuition fees for out-of-province university students, doubling them to around $17,000. Been a lot of blowback from English universities, business groups, Montreal's mayor. Do you believe that plan is fair? Catherine, again, now, so there I am quite certain that I can tell you that that decision is entirely within the competency of the legislature, l'Assemblée nationale in Quebec. So that is a decision made in provincial jurisdiction. So I think it's important to say that. The government of Canada is not the court of appeal Mm -hmm. for decisions that provinces make within their exclusive jurisdiction. Do we think it's a good decision? Of course not. Uh, People from all across Canada go to study at some of Canada's greatest universities in the province of Quebec. I mean, the economic success of Quebec, again, is of interest to the whole country. And Anglophone students that want to go live in Quebec, guess what? Many of them end up learning French quite well. So are you saying this will hurt Quebec? I think this is a bad decision of the government of Quebec, but it's a decision that they're competent to make. And the solution to not make this bad decision or to correct it lies in the hands of the Quebec National Assembly. Um, In explaining this plan, the Premier said, when I see the number of Anglophone students in Quebec, it threatens the survival of French. Threatens is a powerful word. Does he have a point? He has a point when he says, and this is again an example where we've worked collaboratively with the government of Quebec. I spoke to Jean-François Robert, who's my intergovernmental affairs counterpart in the Quebec government, uh, as recently as uh, earlier this week. We have decided to join the government of Quebec Uh, in doing everything we can to protect the French language in Quebec. We have acknowledged that the French language in Quebec uh, has been, over the last number of years, under increasing threat. So will Uh, you say clearly to them that this isn't that, then? Will you say this is not going to contribute to to that aim? But again, protecting the French language in Quebec is something that we have done and will do collaboratively with the government of Quebec. If you asked me, is this on the menu of things that we can do to strengthen Quebec as use of French in the workplace to ensure that the protection of the French language in Quebec is as robust as it could be. Is this one of the things that we think would make a big difference? No. So I think from a menu of other things, I would have focused on other measures because I think in the long term, Mm -hmm. this damages Quebec's ability economically and socially to have interesting, productive, long-term relationships with their partners in, in the Federation. Minister LeBlanc, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Catherine. Have a great weekend. Dominic LeBlanc is the Minister of Public Safety and Intergovernmental Affairs. For more on the question of Quebec tuition, on Friday, I spoke to the Mayor of Montreal. Valerie Plante, welcome to the House. Well, thank you for having me. Now, you have said that this will be a hard blow to Montreal's reputation. Can you describe how you think this move will change the city's Mm -hmm. reputation? 
Uh, well, you know, Montreal is being recognized as a very safe city, affordable city, a green one as well, and a very welcoming one for, for students from the rest of Canada, but also internationally. So we're really proud to be such a big, you know, uh, university city. And to have received this news by being cut by surprise and having this announcement that now it will be more difficult for Anglophone University to receive students from elsewhere it will be more expensive. Actually, it really, it really hurts the reputation because we want to have more and more students, not less. Yeah. What, what about the financial repercussions? I mean, I know business groups are mm-hmm. warning about this. What do you think they might yeah. look like? So I think in the short term, it will affect universities like Concordia and McGill and Bishop University, which is not in Montreal. So that's directly right now, it will impact their their finances. But the government needs to think of ahead of time, like what's coming up. And again, when there's a shortage across the country, when we're having trouble to find the talents and students to follow the economy, it, it will have an impact in the long term of maybe, maybe a company, an investor will say, well, I'm not going to maybe go to Montreal or in Quebec because I'm not sure there's going to be enough workers in the future, you know? So this is where there's a direct impact for universities, but in a medium and long term, it affects the entire economic uh, of the province, I believe. The premier said about this policy, when I see the number of Anglophone students in Quebec, it threatens the survival of French. Do you believe that Anglophone students are a threat? You know, I will always support the will of any government to make sure that the French language is strong in Quebec. I mean, Montreal is the only francophone metropolis in North America, and I'm really proud of that. That being said, I think that if we want to make sure that French is thriving, that it's strong and alive, I think we have to do it in a more positive way. How about, for example, having the tuition fees lower for francophone universities, for francophone students? So I believe more in positive, proactive measures, even financial measures to support French and the French institution and universities, instead of kind of punishing the Anglophone universities. So you you would not use the word threat then? I, I appreciate this is a very sensitive conversation, but it's also a very powerful, <laughs> it's a very, it's a powerful word too. It is. It is. And, and for me, again, all my decisions as mayor are based on numbers and, you know, like data and research. And there is a number that shows that there's more people speaking in English, for example, in Montreal. But the numbers also shows that in Montreal, more than any other cities in Canada, people speak three languages, which is amazing, which is important for as we're getting in this international kind of market now and having to fight countries to get more workers and student and talents. It's a big thing for Montreal. We should see it as a positive way. So again, for me, it, it should be more about how do we make sure that there's positive incentive to support French. Our colleagues at Radio-Canada asked uh, Quebec's higher education minister, Pascal Derry, whether Anglophones from out of province should still feel welcome. I want to play you a bit of her response. Listen, people are welcome. I mean, the premier said, and he really said it, it's a difficult decision, but it's a necessary decision. And the fundamental question is, again, do we, the taxpayers in Quebec, do we still need to subsidize those students uh, that come here and benefit of uh, programs that are at a privileged tuition fee and then leave the province? I think we need to, to question ourselves. We, we subsidize them at a high cost, and that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Does the minister have a point Mm. about being fair to Quebecers? 
again, for me, you know, this government loves French and this government loves the economy. And I think you can do both. They need to accomplish both. At this point in the world, dealing with all the economic difficult perspectives coming ahead of us, you know, for, for the, the entire country. And that I'm talking mostly about the shortage. I'm really questioning why the government, the CAC government cannot move forward with putting together incentive for the Francophone universities and students. They could do that. It exists. We have those measures with France and, and uh, Belgium, for example. So he could make it lower fees for mm-hmm. Francophone students around the world. I just don't understand in this difficult economic context why the government is, is rushing this decision and is choosing kind of a more negative approach to it. And again, I don't think they're maybe realizing the impact in the medium and long term for Montreal and the entire province of Quebec. We've seen in response, um, McGill this week announced it was shelving a $50 million plan for French training for students and staff. Is that a Mm -hmm. justified response? Well, I mean, when I was saying short-term decision or impact, I think this is one of them. Like the universities, McGill, Concordia, and Bishop will have to make decisions based on that. I've been talking to all the uh, universities, both French and English, because it was important for me to bring a bigger perspective to it on how students whatever language they speak, have a positive impact on the metropolis. And I think also what I'm, I feel like this decision of the government is missing is that often it, they need to have more data on how some students that come here and then decides to stay here and how if they have access to French classes and if we put incentive to that, they will stay here and fully participate into the French culture and using the French language. But it's a longer process and we need to put the efforts into it. Some of the analysis of this in the Quebec media this week, you have observers saying, listen, this is actually just about politics. This is the CAQ trying to win over Quebec nationalists who are turning their attention back to the Parti Québécois. Do you agree with that analysis? I have to say, I'm trying to say, and I'm being very honest, as far away as possible from those analysis, not saying that they don't have good or bad points, but I think for me, Being the mayor of a city, you know, like other cities in Canada, we know what's going on here on the field, right? And we know how if Montreal, if the metropolis needs to thrive as a government should expect their metropolis to thrive and to be competitive and dynamic, they need to give us a tool to do so. And as I'm traveling around the world, inviting investors and, you know, like uh, visiting universities and say, come to Montreal, come to Montreal. It's a safe, affordable, green, inclusive city. I need to also have a government that believes in the metropolis, that believes that if we're doing well, it's good for the entire province. And right now, it is difficult to believe that right now, based on the decision that had been made. You're saying it's difficult to believe that the CAQ government believes in Montreal. Well, I, I would say, I mean, that's that would be a very, very strong statement because we work well on different files. But again, it's just based on the fact that there is a, a big opioid crisis, there's a, a shortage crisis, there's a homeless crisis, there's a housing crisis. All that is affecting the metropolis. And now if you add the university, it feels like it's a lot for the the metropolis to take. And we want to have a government that believes, strongly believes that the economic and cultural metropolis of the province of Quebec, which is Montreal, is important and needs to have the right tools to move forward. In closing, what would you say to a student who just struck Montreal off of their list because of this move? 
oh, I, I want them to, to come. They need to come to Montreal because the city itself is, like I said, so good on so many levels. The quality of life is amazing. And they can truly count on our administration that wants to have those students. And for me, what I'm inviting the government to do at this point is to open up the discussion. I know they've made a decision, but I think they need to open up and to look at all the aspects and to come up with positive incentive instead of negative incentives towards the uh, Anglophone University. So students, you are always welcome in our beautiful city. <laughs> Meres Plant, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Valerie Plante is the mayor of Montreal. And you can let us know what you think about Quebec's move to raise out-of-province tuition fees. Our email is thehouse at cbc.ca. Still to come, the BC doctor who is raising alarm bells about one aspect of the safe supply program that provides prescription opioids to drug users. I have personal friends whose kids have been involved with this. I have seen patients in the hospital who have started their addiction with Dilaudid or Dillies. It is creating new addictions. And so we're creating a whole new generation of people who are addicted to opioids through this program. His concerns over unsupervised safe supply in about 10 minutes. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Move over, softwood lumber. There is a new fight brewing with the United States. Canada is pressing ahead with what's called a digital services tax. It's meant to target the world's largest tech companies. It could come into effect early next year, but the Americans are not happy about it. The CBC's Emma Godmere explains why and what could happen next. Common ground is hard to find in American politics these days, but there's one issue that's got Republicans and Democrats on the same side. And you know, it's funny, everyone's up in arms about the U.S. divisions in Congress and how Congress can never agree on anything. Well, you know, one of the things they agree on is that this proposed tax in Canada is bad for American business. 41 U.S. House members from both parties are peeved that Canada wants to move ahead with the digital services tax next year. Two senators even wrote a strongly worded letter last week. And they're not the only ones who are concerned. Laura Dawson is the executive director of the U.S.-Canada Future Borders Coalition. And sure, when the U.S. Chamber of Commerce comes out and says, hey, don't do this, maybe you raise an eyebrow. But when the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and the Business Council of Canada both say, hey, this is not good for Canada, it suggests to me that this offside, independent approach is really not in the national interest. So what is this tax that's on the table? You recognize their names immediately, like Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and so on. Alison Christians researches and teaches international tax law at McGill University. And to some degree, Canada thinks it is not getting sufficient tax from these companies. And so the digital services tax tries to answer that and says, OK, we need these companies that are fully part of our daily lives. We need them to pay taxes in Canada, just the same as companies that are here in Canada, like in a physical way, like Canadian Tire or Tim Hortons, like they pay taxes. This is really a matter of fairness. Finance Minister Christian Freeland first pitched this three years ago. 
She explained some of her reasoning in a conversation with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce back in the spring of 2021. And it's a matter of fairness, uh, first and foremost, for Canadian businesses uh, that because of the nature of the 21st century digital economy, there are a lot of businesses benefiting from customers' data uh, inside countries, but not liable to taxation inside those countries. And so I really see this as a positive measure, as a leveling the playing field measure. And it's a measure a lot of other countries are also keen to adopt. In fact, the UK, France and Italy all have digital services taxes already, but they've agreed to pause their taxes while more than 140 countries try to hammer out a deal to implement this kind of thing across the world. Alison Christians again. There has been a a sort of a handshake agreement among countries to delay the digital services taxes. It was supposed to be delayed until the end of this year because that multilateral solution was presumably going to be finished by the end of this year. Well, it's October. December comes fast and there's no agreement. And so a lot of other countries have said, fine, 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 we'll extend the handshake agreement to delay. And Canada is saying, well, how long do we have to wait? How long do we have to wait and allow the data giants to absolutely benefit from our market and not pay? And that payout could be in the billions. New estimates published by the Parliamentary Budget Officer this week suggest a digital services tax could rake in more than $7 billion over five years. While that might sound like a win for the government, it could also mean a loss for the Canada-U.S. relationship, says Laura Dawson. The U.S. isn't saying, hey, we don't want to do this. Hey, we don't think it's fair to tax big corporations. They're just saying, be patient. Let's go with a multilateral system that works. If you go it alone, you are jeopardizing directly the interests of American companies. And it's more than just the targeting of American firms that's the issue for the U.S. It's Canada's go-it-alone, push-ahead-of-the-global-consensus-and-rulemaking process that's the big problem. The idea had been that we would all move together, because together it would be harder for the companies to sort of play us off of one another and move... Christopher Sands leads the Wilson Center's Canada Institute in Washington, D.C. And if Canada can do this and get away with it, then others will say, hey, I'm going to take some of that revenue as well. He warns there could even be more consequences if Canada forges ahead with this tax. I would expect that some of the digital services companies will push back. We saw that with the, uh, some of the rules about Canadian media and paying different Canadian authors and journalists for their work that gets linked. Companies have felt very free to push back. Where I am more concerned is for companies, say, like the Netflix, Apple, folks who have come in to do deals to support Canadian culture as part of their entry into the Canadian market. There's no no requirement for them to continue that. There are a lot of Canadian artists who will suffer as a result. The government's pitch is a 3% tax applied to companies earning more than a billion dollars globally. James Villeneuve is a senior business advisor at Faskin and previously served as Canada's Consul General in Los Angeles. Remember that these are some of the largest corporations in the world. So While we think these are huge numbers, for them, they're probably not that big or significant, and they budget these numbers in. The issue is, does Canada become the global uh, benchmark for how you treat tech on everything from 
uh, how media is consumed by people and how they pay taxes in countries where their products are being used. However companies choose to respond, there could still be more political fallout. Laura Dawson says this could fall into campaign crosshairs south of the border. When we go into the U.S. election cycle, trade is going to be up there as a target. It's always a target during U.S. elections, and Canada is going to have a target on its back um, because of, uh, of this action. I suspect that Donald Trump or other Republicans will feel free to, to bash away at Canada, hoping that some of the digital services companies will take a second look at Republicans. There's also a risk of more costly reprisals. We know for sure that the USTR is planning a trade challenge against Canada. And that doesn't mean that if Canada does something on digital trade, the U.S. will do something on digital trade. That means the U.S. can impose tariffs on key Canadian industries like maple syrup, aluminum, softwood lumber, things that are really going to hurt Canada and Canadians in the pocketbook at a time when they can least afford it. CBC asked Trade Minister Mary Ng about possible U.S. retaliations earlier this week. I'm not going to guess where things are going to go, but I will continue to work with my U.S. colleague. Uh, this relationship and the trade relationship is an extremely important one. And, uh, and I think what you see us do all the time is, uh, is uh, work with our U.S. partner to find ways that, uh, that ultimately is good for Canadians. That's, that's what I do every day. Canada still supports a global agreement for this corporate tax. But Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen suggested this week the U.S. isn't ready to sign on to that international deal just yet. So if Canada forges on and risks upsetting our biggest ally, is it worth it? Former Consul General James Villeneuve again. Well, there's some obvious benefits, which is revenue to the government is one big benefit. The second benefit could be a communication policy that says we as a country are prepared to dig in against you know, giant tech companies that aren't based in the country. I actually believe that this will be the kind of thing that happens around the world. Our risk, quite frankly, versus Europe or some other countries is that so much of our trade is tied to the United States that their ability to poke us is much greater than some other places. And if the government tables a tax bill before the end of the year, that poke could come sooner than later. For The House, I'm Emma Godmere. In the debate over the toxic drug crisis, there are a lot of heated opinions about what's known as safer supply. Doctors prescribe opioids to drug users so they can avoid buying drugs off the street that could kill them. Here's Conservative leader Pierre Polyev and then-addictions minister Carolyn Bennett back in May. This government is not only giving out dangerous hydromorphine, it is actually, in effect, giving out fentanyl. By giving the user the hydromorphine to sell and raise the revenue to buy the fentanyl, this government is using your tax dollars to, to give out fentanyl on our streets and cause this crisis. By implementing safer drug supply initiatives, we can save lives and provide individuals with the opportunity to break free from the cycles of addiction because there is no recovery for people who are dead. It is the poison drug supply that is killing people. But there are concerns from some who support safe supply and supervised injection sites about what's known as unwitnessed safe supply. 
During the pandemic, users were given drugs to take away and use as needed. Now, some doctors are warning the program is having some unintended consequences. One of the people worried about this is Mark Mallet. He's a hospital doctor in Victoria. As part of our ongoing coverage of the toxic drug crisis, I spoke to Dr. Mallet about his concerns. Dr. Mallet, thank you for joining me. Good morning. Happy to be here. Now, you wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail saying unwitnessed safe supply is causing immeasurable harm in unintended and deeply distressing ways. Tell me more about what those unintended harms are that you are seeing firsthand and also hearing about. So the unintended harms are a few things. One, those drugs are ending up being used by people they were not intended for. In some cases, they are ending up in high schools. They are being used by teenagers, handed out at parties, because we are putting a lot of those drugs, literally tens of thousands of pills a day, onto the streets, and many of those are being diverted to people who weren't intended to be the users. What that has meant is that those drugs are very cheap to purchase and highly available. So that is what teenagers can find if they want to try some kind of illicit drug. They can get prescription-grade dilaudid for about 50 cents to a dollar a pill uh, to try at a party. Another one of the consequences is that this program, according to addictions doctors that I've spoken with, has destabilized patients, people with addictions, who were previously stable on other proven therapies. So they were on methadone or suboxone, which are long-acting opioid agonist treatments, they were stable, and then this program destabilized them by making readily available pharmaceutical drugs easy for them to access. Let me ask you, what evidence is there to support the idea that these unwitnessed safer supply programs are, are leading to the kinds of harms that you're talking about? There's well-understood evidence that increased availability of opioids leads to more addiction. That is well-established evidence. There is also well-established evidence that prescription opioids are generally viewed as safer than street opioids. And so people are more likely to try a prescription drug than they are a street drug, leading to a new addiction. There is plenty of anecdotal evidence that individuals in British Columbia currently who have an addiction, began that addiction with safe supply dilaudid that is available on the street. I have personal friends whose kids have been involved with this. I have seen patients in the hospital who have started their addiction with dilaudid or dillies. I have been contacted by numerous doctors who have told me that they have patients in this situation. In fact, after that article came out in the Globe and Mail, I was contacted by a pediatrician who was really very distraught because in her practice alone, she had three teenagers and their families who were in that very situation, that they were currently living on the street, addicted to dillies, and there was very little that they could do to help them because they had a ready access to ongoing dilaudid on the street. You mentioned your friend's kids. What happened? This is a friend of ours whose teenager is a little older than our own teenagers. Uh, my kids are 15 and 17. And this is someone who graduated from high school about a year and a half ago and, and you know, was doing fine and kind of in the regular teenage scene, going to parties sometimes and ended up being offered dillies at a party and, uh, to be honest, had no idea what they were. Tried them. You know, it felt good. Uh, they tried them again a, a little while later, and they were readily available, and they tried them too many times, 
to the point where they developed an addiction and, and really had no idea what it was they were taking. It wasn't, it wasn't told to them that this is a, a pill version of heroin that you're trying. Um, and unfortunately, they became addicted. And, and it's been a struggle ever since. The past six months has been a struggle. Their, their life has been totally derailed and entirely focused on trying to manage this addiction and trying to get clean and coming up with a plan of what life looks like now, uh, now that they've got this addiction and will live with this forever. Since you went public with your concerns about the way that Safer Supply um, is working, these particular instances of it, what have you been hearing? I have heard from countless doctors uh, almost unanimous support for what I wrote. So that's emergency doctors, hospitalists, pediatricians, even addictions doctors. I received tremendous support from the medical community for what I wrote, which has been really gratifying, but it has left me wondering, who is it exactly that supports this program? Why is this continuing if virtually every doctor believes that it's a, a mistake? And what I've been told is that it's a small group of doctors and advocates that are really pushing hard to support this program, but most doctors think that this should stop. I'd like to just take a moment to talk a bit about the tenor of this discussion, the tone of the discussion. Um, We recently went to Thunder Bay, which has the largest number of opioid deaths per capita in Ontario, and we talked to the manager of a safer supply program there, Brittany D'Angelo, who talked about how exhausted and attacked, she says, the people who do the kind of work that she does feel. It can become really tiring for the advocates that are working in the harm reduction community when we have um, people pushing back against what it is that we're trying to do. Um, The progress that the harm reduction community has made in the last decade, two decades, and seeing some of that work um, being questioned can be a really difficult thing. Now, we were talking with her about the Safer Supply Program generally, but I wonder what you think is happening in terms of the tenor of the debate. It's possible for people to support harm reduction, to support safe consumption sites, safer supply drugs in principle, and just call out this one aspect of the program. I don't think that calls into question the work of the vast majority of people working in addictions. I I would support 100% all the work they're doing. I think they do an incredible job in a very difficult sphere of healthcare. But what needs to be talked about is that this particular aspect of the program is doing incredible harm to not only the people in the community, it is creating new addictions. And so we're creating a whole new generation of people who are addicted to opioids through this program. And I think, unfortunately, the tenor of the conversation has been overtaken by the politics of it. So I know that there are certain political parties that support certain viewpoints. It's certainly a more conservative point of view in general to to attack safe supply. And I think whenever we politicize a health issue and politicians get involved and they they have very strong opinions and rally their bases around those opinions, it is bad for public health. I think the conversation should be to take the best advice from medical professionals in the field who have the experience to provide that advice. I think the uh, the strategy of the BC government to ask Bonnie Henry to do a review of this and, 
and come up with her best medical recommendation is really the best way forward so that we can look at this not through a political lens but through an evidence-based medical lens. And my personal opinion is we've spent a lot of time focusing, particularly in British Columbia, on harm reduction. And I do think that there is room to focus more on effective treatment. Okay. Dr. Mallet, thank you very much for giving us your perspective today. Thank you. Mark Mallet is a doctor in Victoria, B.C. Monday, The Current will have more from British Columbia about how the opioid crisis is affecting teenagers and an interview with the B.C. Minister of Addictions. We are putting a special focus on the toxic drug crisis this season on The House. We kicked off with some powerful conversations a few weeks ago in Thunder Bay. You can download that episode wherever you get your podcasts. It's called On the Front Lines of the Toxic Drug Crisis. And before we go, we wanted to mark a pretty big milestone for Canada this week. In Winnipeg, Wab Canoe was sworn in as the first First Nations Premier of a province. He said during his speech that his election was the start of a new beginning in Manitoba. Here is some of that speech. Today, a new era begins. And today, we get to work for you, the people of Manitoba. We're committed to putting you, the people of Manitoba, first. And we will devote every single day of the next four years to serving you and the future generations who will someday walk these lands. I want to thank you for the trust that you have placed in us. You have given us a mandate to fix health care and to lower costs for your family. You also came together on Election Day to embrace a message of unity and to reject division. And I am so proud of the message that it sends to young people in Manitoba that the people of this province have come together to declare that we are one people, one Manitoba, who are going to build one future together. Manitoba Premier Wab Canoe. That is it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Paz Lang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I am Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.